Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona. And thanks for tuning into another of our virtual events this afternoon. Uh, we're delighted to have Ray Meadows with us today. She's going to be discovering her, her new book, Winterland, um, which has been getting all kinds of great reviews. Um, Barbara has a copy of the Wall Street Journal Review. And um, Ray has signed a bunch of copies for us. I'm not sure if you can see that. But I will go ahead and put a link in the comments field if you'd like to purchase one of our few remaining uh, signed copies. And also, if you have questions, go ahead and just put them in, and Barbara will bring me on uh, on screen towards the end of the hour. I'd be happy to ask any questions. Uh, Barbara, over to you. Thank you very much, Patrick. Well, don't be gain, which is about all the Russian I can remember from my <laughs> years as Stanford. If, if Natasha Poe had been able to join us, I would have tried for more, but there we are. Um, Winterland is actually our notable new fiction book of the month for December, um, because, you know, it's there, there are mysteries in it. There's a missing person in it and all, but it's not a classic mystery by any means. And so uh, we have a we have a club, uh, Ray, that is for books that are not crime. And so here we are. Um, what Patrick was referring to was actually not a review of Winterland, but rather a piece that Ray wrote in the Wall Street Journal. And I'm going to send her my hard copy because she hasn't got one. Um, and it's really, it's really interesting. And what the journal does um, on Saturdays, they have a book review thing. And they ask an author to pick five books on a particular topic. And in this case, what are the five best books on the Soviet era of sports? And Winterland is set in 1973, but it goes back earlier now. So I'm going to assume that we're talking about sports in the USSR, right? Not yeah, after. definitely. Yeah, I would say and it's interesting because the US, as you know, the USSR is a very specific end in beginning and end date. So it's a, it's kind of a fascinating era to study because it does start early and then you have the the various, you know, Stalin and some things that come in that kind of change the tenor of the Soviet Union. But, um, but yeah, it's. I would say I, I think about it in in terms of sports as maybe like the, you know, the 30s to the 80s is kind of the. Well, you know, when the when the wall fell and the whole, you know, the yeah. Soviet Union dissolved into because it actually stands for Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, and when those republics broke away, uh, it isn't the USSR anymore or soviet right. it's russia i right. used to be able to say all that in russian <laughs> but here we are <laughs> anyway um past, i know yeah so so clearly clearly during this period um that gymnastics and other soviet sports were political instruments and we could see that from the sochi olympics i was actually ray we yeah. were actually in georgia the year oh before gosh. the sochi olympics i love georgia and the language is impossible I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Just you know, it's not That's Russian. Fantastic, I'm not sure what it is. That's but in any case, um, they yeah. were they were under enormous and intense pressure mm -hmm. to build the Olympic Village and the mm -hmm. Olympic sports sites and all. And it was, I have to tell you, a giant clusterfuck while we were there. <laughs> but they eventually got it together. But you could see yeah. the enormous pressure to um, Sochi is on the Black Sea. Mm -hmm. and you can see the enormous pressure of um, Russia wanting to, you know, to get these Olympics set up. And then we've seen in the Beijing Olympics that China certainly, you know, took advantage to make, I suppose, any host country. Yeah, I think it's overwhelming. But I would say in, at the Moscow Olympics in 1980, it was very similar. They had to just scramble to erect these arenas that they didn't have. And, and yeah. everything goes into kind of setting up this stage that will be seen by the whole world. Oh, that's so true. Um, Greece, if you remember, practically went bankrupt trying to get it done. London had yeah. all kinds of controversy about, you know, building it where it was going to go. And when yeah. Rob and I were in Cape Town, I remember that the, the our guide pointed out to us that the Olympic soccer stadium was in absolutely a dreadful place. It was down in this kind of marshland. Um, and, you know, it was like the worst place ever. And there was a much better spot. And so we said, well, why did they put it in the, the worst place ever in Cape Town? Yeah. And it was because of the view. They, because the TV cameras would have been, you know, um, and I thought, okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
But anyway, the, let's talk about the five books that you picked as a prelude yeah. here to Winterland. So the first one by Tim Hart is called Faster, Higher, Stronger Comrades from 2020. Why did you yeah. pick that one? Um, I picked that one because it was a great bridge between the early Soviet Union and kind of um, this, the, what, you know, I would say like the 1920s and the, the, the feeling there about athletics and about sports, it, it started out more of a, about the vigor and the health of, uh, of the people of the Soviet Union, that that would somehow help in the development of a, of a better country. And there was this feeling. And then when Stalin came into power, that shifted a lot. And that became, uh, sports became much more about this kind of heroic mythology. And that, that kind of carried in for many, you know, carried on for many generations after that, because um, even now we see that in modern Russia, there's a, this like um, sports as a, uh, as an arm of the political system and kind of showing how great and all countries do it to some extent to kind of show their greatness but the belief in the Soviet Union was much more that it proved the communist system was a better one than others. Absolutely and in fact that's an important element in Wonderland the novel or Wonderland sorry the novel which we will get to but I do think um you know, it was like everybody drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak. Um, and, you know, motive, it was a, a motivating factor in how your characters, where they moved to and how they lived their lives in Definitely. 1973. Yeah. And then, of course, I remember watching all this in real time, being an old person. So Alka Corbett <laughs> wrote my story in 1992. So, and she yes. starred in what, the 1972 Olympics in Munich? Yes, that was her kind of um, her debut on the on the stage. And she really was something different. Um, she came out of a tradition that was very uh, classical, a lot of ballet um, and very stoic uh, look. And here comes Olga Corbett at the 72 Olympics. And she she was she looked much younger than she was, but she had those little pigtails and the, yeah. the kind of lopsided grin. And she played to the crowd and she smiled and she did these incredible uh, acrobatic tricks in a way that that people hadn't seen before, and it definitely struck the the Soviet uh, higher ups on a wrong note. She was not someone who she was loved by the rest of the world, and they kind of had to follow suit. But she did not; she was not beloved by the Soviet uh, power structure because she she veered off so far from their ideal of the kind of this stoic athlete. Well, and you point out she came of age when Soviet gymnastics leadership favored taller, older gymnasts mm -hmm. and femininity and expressiveness were more important than skill. Yeah. I mean, so. it's hard to imagine now that how we see gymnasts now to imagine gymnasts in the 60s and before were grown women um, who looked very different than um, what gymnasts looked like in the subsequent in the years that kind of followed Corbett. Um, where the gymnast became very young and the body type was was just kind of whittled down to these very tiny bodies. Um, but the yeah, the the preceding gymnasts look, they were grown women, they were in their 20s, and they looked quite different than what we ex expect. What happened gymnastics. in the figure skating arena too? I mean, I remember so um, and now, you know, they're, they're almost prepubescent. And you yeah, think, yeah. Happens. I mean, in the last Winter Olympics, that 15-year-old skater looked so young. Um, and yeah, it's the same thing, that kind of thing. You know, and what's, what's tragic about it is that even if their bodies are able to do this, you know, it's very hard for a 15-year-old to have the sort of mental set and, Completely. you know, mental Completely. toughness and whatever to yeah. handle fame that comes along. So you also had, because I remember her and how electric she was, Electrifying, yes. she was rather. Yeah. Letters to a Young Gymnast by Nadia Komenich. Yes. And she was Romanian at a time when Romania mm -hmm. was um, was a Soviet satellite, right? So you sort exactly. of thought of her as the Soviet gymnast. Yeah, so she kind of has a similar, you know, a similar system that supported, that kind of took kids when they were young and, and, and that became their whole life and the state system supported them. And I found, I found her to be really interesting. I mean, she's a beautiful gymnast to watch, and she was obviously the first person to score a perfect 10 and, and was beloved in that way. But she, when you, in this book that she wrote, you see that uh, she is not a, she very much believes in her greatness, which is kind of interesting to see. You don't see that even, she doesn't even feign humility. <laughs> you know, she, is, she fully believes in her own, in her own, uh, 
mark on the sport and and it's it's slightly refreshing it's a little yeah. off-putting at first but i i also feel like you know she she backs it up by what she does out what she did out on the floor well absolutely she did back it up with a 10 i remember rooting for her you know watching yeah. it and, you know everybody was going please don't you know i mean yeah i think everyone wanted her to have a 10. Yes, I think so too. And I don't know if you recall this, but the scoreboards at the time didn't support a 10. So she got a one when that, mm -hmm. when the score first came up, she got a one. <laughs> Very everybody. I do yeah. remember it was, you know, I don't, I don't really watch the Olympics much anymore because there's way too much money in politics that have invaded it like professional yeah. sports here. Um, but back then we were a little more innocent about, mm -hmm. and you know, that whole debate, which you get into too, that whole debate about, mm -hmm state sponsored they were still amateurs versus in this country they were professionals and couldn't compete which has changed you know but back yeah. then it was a really unfair uh demarcation because um you know they were basically yeah. professional athletes even if they you know were not playing in a you know a commercial team yes no oh definitely They're, they were sponsored in a way and you saw when the um when the with the fall of the soviet union they lost the state system you know that was no longer and there are still very good russian gymnasts but they're not at all what they don't have the dominance at all that we saw when they won eight consecutive team golds in the olympics yeah. so the whole world is watching by robert edelman also in 2020 and it says this collection of essays examines how cold war culture can't be fully understood without looking at sports, which is what we've been saying, that sports mm -hmm. were such a political instrument of the Soviet Union. Definitely. And one of those, one of those essays in that book is quite interesting because it, it talks about how the United States, when they saw what the Soviets were doing, they kind of did a similar thing in trying to kind of propagandize a little bit and use, um, use sports and, and kind of as a, as a way to show that that the United States and Western uh, political systems were also good and were, you know, possibly better. So they kind of engaged a little bit in the same game. I see that going on right now in the World Cup. You know, I mean, oh, sure. it, you know, yeah. much rejoicing here when Team USA beat, you know, Team Iran. Yeah. But um, I, I found the World Cup has been dominating the headlines and all the major newspapers. Um, I don't remember that being a feature of the World Cup in the past. It was more a European thing. But now, yeah, no, totally. I think it's a very that, American yeah. thing. Yeah, that that proxy, uh, whatever it is, competition in a larger sense, it does play out in the athletic arena for sure. And then your final book was called Dropping the Torch by Nicholas Evan, what is it, Sarantakis from 2011. Why yes. do you call it that? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I lived through the, I lived through the boycott and my, my kind of understanding as a, just a young person I think was different than I learned in this book. I mean, I think I I, I kind of bought into the um, bad Soviet, good United States right. narrative, and and he gets a little more into it and and shows that you know Jimmy Carter was looking to kind of look strong right. because he couldn't really do anything. He can't he couldn't make any kind of move against the Soviet Union, so he was looking a little bit to play a, play a game at home and to look strong. And it backfired a little bit. Countries were not excited to join the boycott at all. And the and in the end, um, you know, there some political scientists, they, they don't really believe the boycott did much. It didn't, it didn't do anything. It, the, the Afghan war dragged on for years. It didn't affect that. It didn't really affect the way that the Soviets felt at home. Um, so it was kind of interesting to read the nitty gritty of the of that situation that that was different than I had kind of come to understand in the in the. Well, I think you know we thought we were taking this morally correct stance. Yes. Um, or that was the way it was sold to us. But in point of yeah. fact, in the conclusion, um, you mentioned no one in Moscow really missed the boycotters. It might have been humiliating for the Soviet leaders, but a boycott didn't damage the Communist Party within the Soviet Union nor did it have the power to end the Soviet-Afghan war, which dragged on <clears throat> to 1989. And from which I might add, we Americans learned absolutely nothing. Exactly. And, you know, the key question, um, we were talking about it this morning, the key question really with Vietnam and Afghanistan, what were we gonna do with it? If we won the war, were we seriously gonna try to govern Afghanistan? Right. 
And, and I, I think that's right. There was no end game. There was no, none. and there's just, yeah, then it just becomes this open-ended conflict. Um, yeah, completely. And I, I will note, as far as the realm of gymnastics goes and the Moscow Olympics, uh, the United States did not, they were not world competitors in gymnastics at that point. They did not have, their gymnasts were, were nowhere. They did not have the abilities that, that uh, the Soviets had um, really until the coaches started defecting and they started getting coaches from the former Soviet Union, did things start to change in the United States? Well, it's a fascinating topic, and um, and I was doing all this as a prelude to talking about Winterman, <laughs> which is not Ray's first book, but Ray also sent me a couple of pieces that she has written and published that I think also illuminate what she's writing about, one of which is your own um, return <laughs> to movement um, as a yes. mature adult, and you were inspired in part um, by your by your mother, who yes. was always in motion and who tragically developed um, Parkinson's disease. Yeah. And therefore, um, I, I thought it was really interesting when you said, even though her memory failed and so forth, her body still remembered to move. Yes. Well, up until the last, the day before she died, she was riding a, her three-wheel bicycle. Um, and I think that that was so essential to her health and her belief in her in her life that that to keep moving and i think that was incredibly inspiring to me um and i i spent much of my adulthood not exercising and so i and i went back to it in my 40s and have found it to be also really in, you know essential for my well-being i'm impressed i tried to do some jumping jacks this morning and i you know, was really <laughs> suffering so um we have a a good gym up the uh, street as part of the Jewish Community Center, which is okay. nearby. And um, I'm going to try to motivate myself to go. Right, you don't have to do a cartwheel, but you know, just keep moving a little. Or a handstand. I can hardly yeah. imagine a handstand. Wow. <laughs> anyway, I thought your mother's story was really inspiring. And, and it sounded like, Ray, that she probably lived longer as a result of her um, constant movement and keeping her body going than she might have otherwise. Most definitely. And I think with Parkinson's, there's not a lot you can do. There's some drugs that, that have some effect, but really moving is the only thing that, that consistently helps in uh, kind of putting off the worse, worsening symptoms. Um, and movement is the, is the key to that. So she was inspiring because it's not like she felt great <laughs> physically no. and you just kind of have to keep, keep at it. Power through it. So yeah, to yeah. And even, even I think that's so interesting that instinctually your body will do it, even if your mind is no longer directing yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. How long did sure. she live with Parkinson's? Uh, she lived with it for about um, 20 years. Wow. Um, yeah. And she really, uh, phys her physical symptoms were, you know, she, she had them, but she really did keep them at bay longer, way longer than I think she would have if she hadn't been um, working at moving all the time. And doesn't your daughter, isn't you have a daughter who's a gymnast? Yes. I have a daughter who's a competitive gymnast and I am in awe of her. I love it. Obviously I love gymnastics. So getting to watch that and to watch her, um, the effort that go, that she goes in, you know, that go into, goes into her uh, sport is incredible and inspiring. And I wrote actually a lot of this book while I was in the parent area of her gym. Oh. So kind of surrounded by all these great athletes. And and she's not the basis of the character of Anya, but it, it allowed me to understand how um, how a child could function in the, at least for the athletic part of it. And then in your other essay, you wrote to me about the British graffiti artist Banksy, who you know has become quite famous, yes. posted a photo of new work on Instagram to his 11.2 million followers. It was a mural of a gymnast in a double stag handstand on a building destroyed by shelling in the Ukraine. It looks like she's balancing on a pile of rubber as if on a balance beam. And the post is captioned simply, Borodyanka, Ukraine. Borodyanka was one of the first towns to be hit by Russian airstrikes. So even there, you know, the, the idea of the gymnast is a political symbol, but it's a different yeah. kind of political symbol. It's yeah. a symbol really of resistance. Um, yeah. and that the Ukraine is going to, you know, and in uh, fact, that's really what yeah. they've done. Um, 
an, an image of youth, artistry, and grace adorns the wreckage levied by Russia, conveying a sense of hopefulness and optimism for Ukraine. But there's more to it. By choosing to depict a gymnast, Banksy evokes a direct link to the USSR. The Soviet gymnastics team was the best in the world for decades. They first won team gold in the 1952 Olympics and then went on to win at seven more games. Um, and, you know, I, mm -hmm. I think... I think it's interesting that he would choose that that image. I um, do too. I do too. It also, I to me, signals that the the uh, Soviet Union is not that far in the past. It may be thirty years past, but really, as we see in modern Russia, it it really is still part of the cultural identity. Well, I think one wonders if he knows of Elena Mukina, who, like Ukraine, was a casualty of Russian force and information and whose tragic demise foreshadowed the end of Soviet gymnastic glory. And I think, you know, most people watching what's going on in the Ukraine recognize that this is Putin's attempt to regain Soviet, you know, glory and Soviet power, um, yeah. which yeah. is an effort not likely to succeed. But he apparently deluded himself into thinking that the Ukrainians would welcome the Russians or wouldn't put up any resistance, nor and that the West was too fractured right. to respond, which is a yeah. series of miscalculations that yeah. is pretty mm -hmm. frightening. But you are in 19, we're finally gonna to get to talk about the books. <laughs> um, but we are in fact in Russia in uh, Soviet Union in 1973, when all of that really lay in front of us and the mm -hmm. Soviet gymnastic teams were indeed doing amazing things. Mm -hmm. um, and so talk to us about Anya and her family and what's going on. Yeah, so the so as you mentioned, when you, you get a bit of this mystery at the beginning of the book, when Anya's mother, a few years before the book opens, um, she she disappears. Um, she is a former Bolshoi ballerina. She has lost faith in what the communist party has she has believed in thus far and she is starting to say things that are unsavory for as far as the party goes um and so she disappears and it's unclear kind of what what has happened and then anya so she she has left behind her husband yuri and her young daughter anya who will soon become part of this grueling state system in gymnastics um, so I, 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 for me, this book is very much obviously about Anya, um, but it's also a book about many things, including I think loss for a lot of these characters. Loss is such plays such a big part of it. Anya, I, I think for her whole life feels this loss of her mother, and that is one of the things I think that makes her into the gymnast that she is. I have thought about whether if Anya's mother had not disappeared, whether she would have been the gymnast that she is, because um, her life might have been different. She might not have felt that same kind of need to uh, fight against that loss that she had. Um, and I also think loss comes in, obviously, with some other characters, with Vera, her neighbor, um, who has lost years of her life to the Gulag camps. I don't think you can write about the Soviet Union without bringing in the Gulag, so, so because that was such an incredible part of their history. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's some estimates that say it was tw that 20, 20 million people passed within the the system of the Gulag camps, which is incredible, an incredible number. Well, uh, it is, and of course, Siberia. The climate is changing somewhat, but you know, there was hardly yeah. a more brutal place on Earth to live, except possibly Antarctica. Than yeah. Siberia in this in this time now with the permafrost melting and you know shipping now going over the top of the world and the right. whole bit that yeah. the the idea of being exiled to a gulag is at least in terms of climate not quite so frightening although in right. terms of the forced labor because they were basically forced labor camps they were um, forced labor yeah most definitely yeah. And this town was built by them I mean it was built by yeah. forced labor so it. it um, and incredibly, this this town that I based the the novel in still exists. In fact, it it is it has 175,000 people. I mean, it's kind of amazing. You can't go to it. It's a it's a closed city still. You have to have permission from the government to go. Yeah, I think it's because it is a um, it's such a center of natural resources. I mean, it's one of the it's 
Um, I think it has one of the largest deposits of nickel and copper in the world. Um, and so it, it basically is still a mining town, but it's, it's, so, it's such an incredibly inhospitable place, incredibly polluted. Uh, there's darkness for a lot of the year and total darkness for a few months of the year, um, which seems so hard to imagine living in. I think that's one of the things that I gravitated toward is that it is such an inhospitable place and how people um, adjust to living life in that way where you have no sunlight and it's 50 degrees below zero um, and yet they keep going and they keep living. Right. Where, where is it? If we're looking at a map of Russia, where where roughly is this town? Um, it's in, so if you look at a map of, of Russia, it's kind of almost midway. It's a, it's about, I think it's 3000 kilometers from Moscow. So it's kind of straight up and slightly to the east. Um, so it's, it's, it's above the Arctic Circle. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been to Murmansk, um, which is as oh, yeah. far as I have yeah. gone across. Yeah. And oddly enough, when I was in Murmansk, they were having a heat wave. It was like 90 degrees. Oh, wow. And everybody was perishing because there was absolutely <laughs> zero air conditioning or oh, any, you know, heat relief. And the people are used to wearing, and this. I remember this in Scotland years and years ago out on the Isle of Skye. They're used to wearing, you know, heavy tweeds like year round because, and, and so they never get them cleaned and they, oh, yeah. they can't wash them. And so the, the human aromas in oh, well. were really <laughs> yeah. dreadful. And um, yeah, um, it's, it's not a very appealing place. Um, yeah. And of course it's on, it's on the, the ocean, you know, the water because yeah. it was a, um, a major um, shipbuilding in, you yeah. know, Russian, yeah. Russian port in the war and so forth. But anyway, um, if you went south from Murmansk onto land, then I guess it would be more difficult because water always provides sort of a buffer um, yeah. for extreme climate. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, and you're right. I think with climate change, things will change a lot. I mean, the Arctic Sea is now, yeah. it's, it's passable in a way that it wasn't before. Yeah, now the Northwest Passage actually means sailing up across the top of Russia. I've yeah. sailed across the top of Canada. We did the Northwest oh. Passage cruise in 2017, which meant you went up north around Alaska and then you went all the way across the top of Canada and ended up in Greenland, which oh was gosh. really fascinating. But even then, even then, while they had had an icebreaker and so forth to to go with the ship and Kate, it was there was so much global warming that there was there was almost no ice. There was no need for the icebreaker. I think Amazing. we only saw like three polar bears because there wasn't anywhere for them to be. Yeah. Um, because there oh. wasn't any ice, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. That's so completely different. You know, you think about that tragic voyage of the people who died looking yeah. for the Northwest Passage, but today wouldn't be a big oh. thing. Anyway, um, Anya's parents were, yes. um, they moved to this awful place. Um, yes. Because in part, it was like almost a missionary zeal yes. to, you know, to go and live in this place for the good of Mother Russia, for the good yes. of the Soviet Union. And, um, and they were willing to make sacrifices in order to be good patriots, good Soviet yeah. citizens. Yeah. And even though Anya's mother has disappeared, does her father still share that, you know, that feeling that he's there doing amazing work for the, for the Union? I think that he, when we meet him, he is, you know, years into this life. And I think that he clings a little bit to that, to the former zeal that he had, even though he doesn't, he's starting to not quite believe it because of what he sees all around him. And yet I think to him, it's almost a religion. He has faith that this is what he came to do and this is what the country was going to do. And then he's starting to, that's starting to erode a little bit. And I think that that's, really scary for him. And also, um, you know, he turns to, he drinks a lot and he uh, can't quite face that what he has given his life to maybe wasn't worth it or maybe doesn't even exist. No, I agree. I think, I think that came across. And of course, I suppose, you know, somebody that was so much part of you, your, you know, your family, your wife disappeared. There'd yeah. always be a, a, a sort of feeling that if you left and that person reappeared, they couldn't find you. And yeah. since we, you know, um, I'm not going to say whether we ever find out what happened to Anya's mother, but um, for him, it was an ongoing, you know, 
missing person case, so to speak. But I think that's a common reaction, as I understand it, not that it's happened to me, but I've read about it a lot, is that when a child or somebody else goes missing, people are reluctant to move on. For sure. They're never yeah. entirely sure that that person won't come, come back and then not be able to find them. Yeah, and I think even for Vera, who, when she gets out of the, the camp, the Gulag camp after 10 years, and she has lost her husband and her son in that uh, camp, she can't leave. She feels like she can't leave the area because her memories of them and where they, where the last time she saw them, she feels like somehow that she is tied to that place. So even though it's such a painful place for her to be because of this experience in the camp, she also feels like she has left, that her life and her, her family was there and that she, she's not able to leave. So even though they're not coming back, they have died, but I think this, the, the kind of memories of them, she can't fully leave. So meantime, we have Anya, who's a teenager, and of course, you know, is this going to be her life? Um, and if it isn't, what's her ticket out? And, um, you know, while she may buy into that, a similar sort of missionary idea, you know, of being a Soviet gymnast and all the rest of it, it also is a way for her to escape. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, that when she is initially chosen for the state system, uh, it gives her it gives her a route forward in a way that that other people, you know, she feels the honor of it. She knows that she's special in that way, even though it's in a society where you're not supposed to feel special or you're not supposed to, you know, kind of differentiate yourself. This path gives her that opportunity. So even though she's completely at the mercy of her coach and the state system and the Soviet Union, there is a little part of her that that can flourish and kind of she has an identity and she has a personality. And even if she can't fully realize that yet, um, there is something that I think she inherited from her mother that is like uh, pushes against those limits a little bit in any way that she can. Well, it's not uncommon in so many communities that one can visit where the teenagers don't see any real life for them as they move. And so, you know, they flock away, leaving you know, older people behind, and then you wind up with aging communities and no, you know, yeah, long, no long future. Um, yeah, yeah. So that that would be part of what's going on. But you, you know, you you mentioned the uh, that she's going into the state system. Mm -hmm. So this is a lot different than you know, um, helicopter parents, right? You know, in the United <laughs> States, and, oh look, my child might be a figure skating star or something. Right. And, um, yeah. And it becomes a family and a, you know, how to finance it and a family thing. And the yeah. Soviet Union, if you were selected for this state system, basically they just sucked you in and yes. everything was taken care of. You, there was no financial outlay. Um, yeah. The coach really took over for your parents. Yeah, and, for sure. Um, I think that the, I think that's right. And her, and her father got money. They were, families were paid money when their kids were taken into the state system. So it was a, it was a, a tricky dynamic if you're if you're supporting your family by being in this system and it's not really a choice i think you you know she she couldn't have said no um, no it felt like a draft you yeah. know not a yeah, volunteer yeah, yeah. but a draft was yeah. sort of the way i i you know i and as you say it was a huge honor you know i mean i yeah. think that that there was still enough idealism about yes. soviet society and so forth that you know isn't it isn't it terrible that Communism has never, maybe there's one state in India I've I learned about and we went to Tahiti last April and there was a man there, I think it's Kerala or Kerala, whichever way it's pronounced, is actually a communist state in India that seems to have managed. But in every other instance, it seems to turn into an autocracy. Yeah. You know, with a strong man and, and maybe, you know, the, the basic concept that everybody can live equally, mm -hmm. which is, you know, Thomas More in Utopia was kind of an early version of that. Yeah. It's just not human nature, you know? And, no, and, and yeah, yeah, I think that's right. She wanted to feel I mean, special, or she's, she does feel special, but she's not supposed to feel special because right. of this premium on equality. But, you know, but that's really not how people function. And I think that right. communism was always, you know, I don't know what exactly, it, it was never really going to fly. No, and I think in this it's human nature. Yeah, and I think that that we kind of see in in Yuri's world, um, 
it's not equal at all. You know, there there are hierarchies. There there are this, there's this level of people who's making a lot more money, who has access to goods that most people don't, and so people are waiting in line. But then, you know, it's it's very very much a striated uh, society. So it, the idea of it, do, yeah, does not is not in practice. Um, you know, I've always thought it was so interesting that the Russians seized on it to get rid of the Tsar, and then they wound up with Stalin, who was far worse than Nicholas ever yeah. thought of being. You know, Nicholas was yeah. a family man who just was a lousy ruler, but he wasn't yeah. a bad man, you know? Right. I mean, and then you end up with Stalin for a long time, who is just, yeah. I mean, just, it's And so his, his rise to power you know, stepping on the people that, that, you know, that sort of early communist group, and then you wound up yes. with assassinations and all oh. this other horrible stuff, and there's yeah. no clear path to succession, and, oh, yeah. you know, they end up doing social engineering that is catastrophic yeah. for many yeah. people, you know. Yeah, yeah. and, and um, starving and creating a famine in the Ukraine, you know, it was just incredible. Yeah. I actually really like, I know that in the, you know, in the book there is a cameo by Stalin, and I loved writing that that yeah. section. I found it to be so fun. Um, it's Stalin when he's very old. It's about two years before he dies, and he's he is a uh, uh, paranoid and believes he's being poisoned and all these you know at the stage of his life. And in the in the real DACA that you can visit, he, they still have all you know. He had the kind of bulletproof couches and everything was you know all set up. I mean, he was completely losing his mind but it was it was fun to write that scene and fun to kind of imagine uh him as a character well yeah i mean the thing is that people get into the bad position end up living in a bubble uh, yeah. where people are afraid to tell them the truth about anything and so yeah. they gradually become more and more out of touch and more and more um paranoid and you know generally don't live to be old Stalin was not very old when he died. No, he wasn't. He was did he make it to 70? I think, I he, think did. he made it to this early 70s. Yeah, I'm not sure on that. But yeah, he was not that old. He 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 was, um, and he was, I would say, uh, mentally debilitated at that point. Um, there were there were kind of rumors that he had been poisoned. Who knows? But but yeah, he was not in. If he was ever fully in his right mind, he was definitely not in his right mind by the end. Right. Well, we're seeing sort of an imitation of all that going on at the moment, although, yeah. you know, we'll see. Yes. Anyway, um, so Winterland is a really fascinating book. And um, yeah. I lived through the call where I was born in 1940. So, you know, the arc yes. of my life goes right through this. But what um, I'm amused about is how little I knew about so many things that were happening, you know, while I was living through yeah. Well, I'm not sure a lot of people did know. I mean, it was a it's a very it was a very closed time. I mean, I until the Soviet Union fell, I mean, even the story of Elena Mukina, like she no one knew. She was she was basically it was a total cover up that you didn't know that most of the Western world did not know that she had broken her neck right before the Olympics. Um just the Soviets were able to control information in a way that that's hard to do now, certainly. Well, they had a massive doping program that nobody oh, figured yeah. out, you yeah. know, for, for ages. So, Forever. you know, part of yeah. their excellence in sports was, you know, yeah. um, right. Um, so, yeah. so, you know, I, I see all the forces that, that brought you to writing Winterland. What, yeah. um, since I, I'm not familiar with your earlier work, what else have you written about? Well, my last book, it's kind of, interesting that I chose to set this novel in the in Norilsk, which is such a harsh place to live. My last novel was called I Will Send Rain, and it was set during the Dust Bowl. So it was a similar, um, very stark uh, landscape. And I loved it. I loved writing about that period. I loved researching it. Um, to me, the thing that really struck me with that with that period was the were the families that decided to stay year after year after year just thinking things would get better. Um, so I wrote about a family that stays during the Dust Bowl and and tries to kind of navigate. But in this in a similar way to Winterland, against this kind of dramatic, terrible landscape, human beings still do what they do. Um, and so they, I think they get used to a certain life. Uh, as terrible as it is, and then they still are having the same interpersonal and family dynamics that that would happen in any other 
situation. But I do love, I'm also very visual. I love looking at photographs. So for me, oh. for either, I mean, for, um, for Winterland, I love looking at old videos and film that has come out of Russia and uh, love looking at old photos. And same, same with I Will Send Rain, the Dust Bowl photos are fantastic. They are. And of course, it was a man-made catastrophe caused yes. by economic pressures that, you know, you could do better with X than Y. And so, yeah. you know, it's like deforesting the Amazon, which is another potential, you know, disaster. Right, which we will live with, you know, we will have to, eventually there will be a reckoning. It can't go on forever. No, um, not yeah. at all. There've been, there've been several novels about deforestation. There's a really good one. I'm blanking on her name, but Patrick will remember it. Um, a book written last summer by a Flagstaff, a Arizona author, um, oh. about about um, deforestation or, or what, what's going on in the forests in I think I think in Washington State or Oregon, whichever it was. Um, oh. But anyway, a very powerful book about yeah. you know the pros and cons of logging, and yeah. you know um, communities that economically are dependent on it, and then and you know we have our own Navajo here with you know things going on about nuclear power. About thank you, Damnation Spring by Ash Davidson is the book I'm talking. Oh, great! Oh, about really, really, really excellent book. Okay, um, she came down and or we did a conversation about it. And I think it's received a lot of credit, but um, you know, I think this interplay between what people do to, you know, make a living or, well, we see it with the whole Russian oil thing going on. Sure. One effect of the war, which I find completely fascinating and I can't understand why Putin didn't see it, although he thought it was gonna be over in a month or something, was that he's basically kicked Europe out of dependence on, yeah. on Russian gas yeah, and forced to force them to, you know, solar and wind power and um, to make those changes so much more rapidly than if just regular economic and political pressures had been on them. He probably right. kicked it all ahead like 20 years. I know, I know. It's true, it's true. And he's I, throwing I, his own, you know, his own market for their principal uh, economic asset, which is, you know, um, gas and oil. Yeah, he's, for he's, sure. He's taught the rest of the world not to depend upon it, and um, I think yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, in this in this town of Nor the city of Norilsk, where the book is set, I mean, even now it's really incredible. They they because it is so polluted, the river will sometimes run red from from the copper plants. The all the the what used to be kind of a boreal forest around is is all dead. So it's just like these dead stalks of trees. And the whole place is just, I mean, it's amazing that people can kind of keep going there because yeah. there's so little that's left that's alive, that's a kind of a living matter there. And, you know, that goes way, way back. I remember years ago when we went to Ephesus the first time. And, you know, it's a beautiful city. It's on the Dardanelles coast of Turkey. And yeah. cruise ships go there all the time because there's a gorgeous maroons and so forth to see mm -hmm. but it was obviously a huge thriving important mediterranean port so to speak black mm -hmm. sea port and so as we wandered down to the port i'm always asking questions i thought you know what happened so i asked and because the port is like salted up and you know it led to the abandonment of the town i said what happened and they said well as far as they can work out shipbuilding was so important to the, this is the Greeks, I think, the early Greeks, um, because of the port that they chopped down all the trees to make, um, to build ships. And when they chopped down all the trees, every time it rained, the land began to wash down uh, and gradually yeah. the port began to silt up and the port turned into marshland. And when it turned into marshland, it became a mosquito breeding ground. And when that happened, malaria took over and it wiped out everybody. Oh and my the God. whole city basically declined. And then I thought, okay. And then we went to Myanmar and we were sailing down the river from Rang no, from Mandalay to Rangoon. Mm -hmm. And the same dynamic is in play that they are chopping down the trees mm -hmm. in order to, I think not for shipbuilding, but for furniture, because these are, you know, like fabulous old growth trees yeah. and also yeah, anyway, as a consequence, the land's beginning to erode. And you know they're beginning to get mudslides and all, and things are going to silt up, and they're going to have more disease mm -hmm. because there's not a mosquito living that doesn't prefer a swamp. 
sure. you know, to yeah, any yeah. other. Yep. And I yeah. think, okay, you know, oh. we haven't learned a damn thing from the yeah. groups all the way here to the, um, you know, to the people living in Myanmar, but, in, yeah. and now it's happening in Brazil. But I guess if you're a person who's starving or has five children or 15 yeah. children, to feed, and the only way you're going to do it is chopping down trees to either make ships or build furniture right. or, you know, clear the land yeah. or something. It's hard in the immediate moment to most see definitely. what the future benefit is. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And it's hard also, I think, as we in a in a very developed country can kind of see these things, but but to yeah, kind of require people who need who need immediate uh, things for life. It's hard to kind of Really, yes. There was that the yeah. Washington Post today had a really interesting article upon what's his name, Sam Friedman Bank, you know, yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah, the, the crypto guy. Yeah. And they said, you know, that that the 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 problem. They, I love this. First thing they said is the big problem is he doesn't read. He doesn't read books, so <laughs> he's not he's not, you know, a critical thinker in the same yeah. way that would. But anyway, they said that his idea of whatever altruism. I mean, you 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 do this crypto thing and you make all this money so that you can pay it forward to the future. The problem is that you know you wipe out the present while you're trying to get right. the future. And yeah. um, instead, it would be better if people could work out that they could do good in the present and pay it forward into the future, which is really yeah. what the climate activists and so forth are yeah. talking about. It was yeah. a really, it was a really fascinating article about, you know, and he's a kid, right? So he's, yeah, he's, he's 30 years old. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Um, but it was a really interesting article about he's so used to the info age and just, you know, little snippets of information. It would be as though I think they said that if somebody told you that Elizabeth Bennett met married Mr. Darcy that that summed up Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> that was the entire point of the book was that Elizabeth married Mr. Darcy. Right. And you don't learn anything about, you know, that the forces in play and the digressions and the right. family relation. You miss the entire context. Right. You just get the plot, the very basic plot. Yeah. I guess. And that's yeah. what's wrong with his thinking, you know, is yeah. that, and you know, I'm beginning to wonder if Elon Musk isn't falling into the same. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I'm saying all this because Winterland is, is historical fiction. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. By now, 1973, if you think of historical fiction, if the fiction is like the bar is about 50 years, which right. is the discussion we've been having lately because, you know, where where is the line? Between, where is the line? I know. I know. Kind of, we've kind of lived on, on 50 years for a variety of reasons. And so 73 falls into that. But at the same yeah. time, the things that that Ray is talking about and all are entirely contemporary, you know, I mean, in what it really proves is that we never learn from our history or learn from our past or we're doomed to repeat it or whatever you want to say. I know. I do think it's very, it is kind of amazing how it is eerily, <laughs> eerily mm. modern in some of its things and some of its themes and, and, and the way that now all eyes are on Russia in a way that it shouldn't surprise us, and yet it seems to. Well, you know, it was a fortunate timing for you. I mean, people yeah, yeah. <laughs> always yeah. try to remind readers that books take a really long time to come into being. They it's do. not like journalism. And so the fact that Winterland yeah. was publishing, you know, in the middle of Russia's war, the Ukraine and all, was not by design. No, but, not at all. And it was rather shocking. Yeah, this is a long time in the works, and it was not at all anything I was thinking about. Um, right. But it turns out that it makes your story far more relevant to the moment than it might Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've always been interested in the Soviet Union. I've had a real fascination with it, but I do feel like now it, people are interested in yeah. Russia. And, and I think you can't look at Russia without looking at its past, like with any country, but particularly for Russia. I think it, it matters that they have a history, that their history of the Soviet Union how and they've always to. had that, you know, I mean, I've spent a fair amount of time in St. Petersburg and oh, nice. whatever. Um, yeah. And from that, you you learn because it was actually built by Peter the Great as part of Russia's desire to have a warm water port. Um, yeah. But also, while Russia is an Asian country to a great extent, they've always 
had this sort of push towards yes towards Europe. In fact, Peter the Great's yeah. court, they only spoke French. Yes. Um, you know, they didn't even speak Russian. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, Russia's always had this sort of dual dual thing about, you know, they're Asian and, you know, mm-hmm. Eastern Russia is like right above China and it's facing yeah. the Pacific. But but the larger port of the larger civilized part and the larger point of governance has always tried to move or has yes. anyway, not always, but for several centuries, tried to move west, yes. tried to associate with Europe, tried yeah. to have a warm water port either down through the Dardanelles, down through Turkey, mm-hmm. um, or or up. Um, and now, of course, they've got mermaids because it's right. warm water up there in the Arctic, but they didn't right. know that. Well, have you ever, I don't know if you've heard, there's a expression that is kind of credited to Napoleon. I don't know how true that is, but it was, it's if you scratch a Russian, you'll find a Tatar, which is a, you know, a, I mean, it's a, right. it's a slur, but it basically means that same thing that, that it, with all the kind of veneer of high civilization that Russia still has this kind of wild Turkish side to them. And they're, you know, and that was a snub by Napoleon. All the Stan republics were actually very, you know, symptomatic, yeah, Kazakhstan, whatever it all is, you know, that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm saying is there, there is there's a real duality that yeah. is, you know, true of Russia as a country and Russia as a people that yeah. you don't experience as much in, in many other countries. And part of it is just its sheer size. You know, it's oh. been such a staggering. Enormous. Um, yeah. 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 It is unbelievably enormous. I mean, 12 time zones. I mean, it's really huge. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, I don't know that it will ever you know, ever really find an identity in the way that smaller nations and so forth can do, because it's kind right. of riven, always riven by. Yeah, um, even despite the information age, if you have a landmass that's that big, it's just very hard to have, I think, a cohesive field. Yeah. You've got, you know, you've got different pools of people, you've got different landscapes, you've got different, mm-hmm. as you point out, 12, 12 time zones. And as Patrick, yeah. come see us, Patrick. Patrick and I can tell you, but the most interesting part about doing Zoom for the last three years is recognizing how few people can actually manage time zones. Really I did have to double check on my, uh, ma- on my time zones today. I know. Yeah. It's, really, it's really the challenge of Zoom is to get everybody in the same, totally. the same moment. Especially if they're in Australia, that's a real challenge. Oh my gosh, I can imagine. Big discussion. I won't name the publisher because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but there's a very good book. And I, I wound up blurbing for January and I said to the publisher, you know, I should really, now that I've done all this, it's really good work, I should really do an event with them. And they said, well, you can't do that. He's in New Zealand. And I said, well, actually we could. And they said, well, but you can't manage the time. And I said, well, here's the thing. If it's three o'clock in Scottsdale, it's 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. in New Zealand. Right. So it's just the next day. Right. You can just, it's perfectly doable. Oh, right. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> I cracked up. Sorry, my thing got so dark. It's very gray and rainy in Brooklyn today. It got very dark in here. But well, we have sun. Probably a lot. (laughs) Our season in Arizona. Hooray. So Patrick, any questions or comments that you'd like to make? Yeah, I'm just looking here. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the area in Brooklyn where where she ends up? Oh, that's such a nice question. I will tell you, I will admit that I currently live very much in the area where she ends up, but it's it's 20 years later. So it's not quite as, and I will also say, so, so Anya ends up living on this street that I live on. Um, and the old Navy prison that she notes in one of her things is the site of where I live now. So it used to be um, it's across from the Navy Yard, so it used to be where they manufactured uh, ships, and the, but the Navy Yard has not been the Navy Yard for many, very many years. So in the time in the late 90s when Anya is there, it is a really gritty, desolate uh, neighborhood where, you know, industrial, not really a lot of people living there. And it's still rather, still a little gritty, but but not quite as much now. Is it still more Russian than Russia? Um, no, but I'll tell you, Coney Island and Brighton Beach 
still Rus more Russian than Russia. Brighton Beach. I mean, yeah, you have everything in Russian and, and still in uh, Brighton Beach. And it's it's really fun to visit. It's just, a, it's a, you get kind of, you can go to great Russian restaurants and um, we've got a Russian bookstore. It's it's really neat. For a while there, Barbara, do you remember there, there seemed to be a, a number of novels that dealt with the Russian mob yeah. out yes. there on Long Island and yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The Russian Rob kind of came along and you know replaced the, the Italian mafia. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, know, and I will tell you, it, it 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 came out of the Gulag. The the Russian uh, organized crime, the the wings of the Russian organized crime, all all began in the Gulag. Um, the kind of mm -hmm. rules and the language and and yeah. the tattoos are are all there's a direct prison gang gulag. culture is basically yeah. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Very true. Um, I was going to ask also about. Uh, have you read make some of Megan Abbott's work? I have, I have. I I, I read um, the gymnastics book that she, the thriller that was right. set in the gymnastics world, and I loved reading that. It was so fun. Some of my friends who uh, who are into gymnastics like I am, we read it with relish. Um, she did. She's such a talented person, and I love the kind of dark. Uh, you know, she's a pretty dark writer and the and the gymnastics thriller, um, I think it's called You Will Know Me, something right. something like that. Um, yeah. It's really dark, but she does a great job. And I found it interesting that she said it in the world of gymnastics. It was, it was funny and competitive gymnastics because that's what <laughs> that's the world I'm in with my daughter. So it definitely, you know, rang true for me. Do you think there's an element of, you know, in a in a world that's so out of your control you know, specifically in this story, that the discipline and the, you know, the rigor of gymnastics uh, in some way provided, you know, uh, I don't know, I don't know how to phrase it, but um, uh, I don't know, um, provided. That's is the word you're looking for. Yes, thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah, definitely. And I think, and I think for, you know, I think for Anya, when she is, as she grows, and is no longer a gymnast. I think for a while she is at sea. She does not know where what to do because she's so used to this discipline. And so, and I see it even on a on a lesser scale. At, um, girls who are at my daughter's gym and who graduate, and some go on to do college gymnastics, but some don't. And when they when they've put in a whole lifetime of being at the gym for twenty five hours a week and structuring their days in this way, it's really hard to go from that to nothing. Um, nothing that kind of provides that same structure for, and when it comes to the body also, your body is used to existing in a certain way, the amount of exercise, the amount of stretching, the, the eating, all that stuff, and then all of a sudden that's gone, and it just feels like this open-ended, and I think can feel really terrifying for a little while. Um, and I think with Anya, she she regains her footing um, eventually, but I do think that it that it leaves her kind of feeling uh, adrift for a while. But you have a passage in the book, which I find really interesting when you say um, she felt this shadow of gymnastics in her body. This is after she is in America yeah. and older. The grinding in her ankle, the stiffness in her back, the arthritis in her knees, her hands that hurt when she made fists. After a night on her feet carrying trays at the Rusalka, she had to hold her breath just to get out of bed in the morning. And, yeah. you know, I think at, there's a toll on, on athletes' bodies that is oh. um, harder. I, I can't figure out Tom Brady. I mean, talk about it here. I'm going to progress <laughs> right over here. But, you know, when you're looking yeah. at the, at, there was a big article in something about Tom Brady and Giselle Bündchen and the reason for their divorce. And most of it was that she wanted him to stop playing football because, you know, she felt like he had escaped the concussion syndrome yes. and the bodily yeah. injury. And he made his point. He won a Super Bowl without Bill Belichick. And what yeah. did he, at that point, what did he have to prove? Yeah. He just couldn't let go of football. And his statement was he didn't know what he would do yeah. if he stopped playing. Yeah, and I think that's thought, very true. I think, yeah. I mean, yeah, I talk about that with some some parents um, who whose kids are on the same team and level as my daughter and even even at this level I it would be it will be hard it would be hard for them to transition to something else I mean I think um, when you get all your satisfaction and and 
your purpose from a, from a certain pursuit and then that's gone, I think it's very hard to find what that should be or who you are. I think for Anya, uh, part of this novel is kind of coming, kind of forming an identity and trying to figure out what that identity is when she is able to, when she's kind of free of this system and no longer has it. Like, what is she, who is she? Um, and I think we all face that to a certain level, but probably more pronounced when you have a, when you're an elite athlete or you have a, a specific thing that you- I think it happens to people like. facing retirement if they haven't come up totally. with something to replace it. So I don't yeah. think it's limited to athletes. No, I think you're um, right. Yeah. You know, but I think it's more severe for athletes than mm -hmm. it is um, for many other groups of people. Yeah, and when your body is is has gone through what it's gone through, and you're left with this, as you that passage you read, this series of injuries and old yeah. things that will never quite go away. I think their bodies are at a different state. You know, Anya's 18, and it seems like her body is at a very different stage because of these very, you know, the shadow of those injuries. Yeah, but I mean, you show her father in really terrible shape when he yeah. meets up with her in America. I mean, he's lived in this awful place. And, yeah. you know, you say he's 62 years old, but he looked 80. His mm -hmm. chest sunken, his skin sallow. Ever, and he had never gotten used to how his once green eyes had turned eerily golden or how in the, in the home where he's being cared for, his face was shaven clean of his beard. His memory was full of holes too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, so... 63 is not old, but if not if, old. given um, the life that he led and the place that he led it, it really was old. Yeah, and I think for working it really, the, the copper toxoplasmosis that he had, I mean, that's a real thing. And, that, and I, the, the toll, yes, again, like that physical toll on his body was extreme. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, yeah, it's incredible. Happens to, you know, to minors and, you know, all the black lung stuff and all the rest of it. There are lots of, we were in China years ago. I remember we were taken to a rug factory and, you know, because they make absolutely gorgeous carpets. And somehow or other, the guy leading the tour, the Chinese, in a sort of casual way, said that all the women had to retire at 40 because by then they'd gone nearly blind. Oh, my gosh. From, I know. But yeah. I mean, the, thing, the thing was so horrifying was the way he said it. Oh, that's You know, terrible. like, you know. Yeah, it's just the deal. You know, you work in, you go in and, you know, you have little nimble fingers when you're when you're young and you, you know, yeah. not the rugs and the whole bit. And then one day, you know. Yeah, I do think it's interesting with the, with the characters in the book who have to deal with these physical challenges, who survives and who doesn't and who breaks and who doesn't. And I think that, that there is a lot there. I mean, they're pushed to their limits and they also, um, you know, in the case of Vera, her her husband, breaks and she doesn't and what what is the difference there is it is it a you know what is it in her mind i think that keeps her going resilience is the key some yeah. people are resilient some aren't yeah. anything else patrick that you want to bring up uh let's see here just a question has come in um who are some of your favorite authors well i'll tell you some of my some of my all-time favorite books or books that mean a lot to me um uh, Virginia Woolf to the Lighthouse is one that I just love. Um, there's a there's a small book that's by the writer Stuart Onan that's called Last Night at the Lobster. I right. love that book. It's a very very small in its in its scope, but I find it incredibly beautiful. Um, one of the books that I've read recently that I really loved was was the book Shuggy Bain, the Scottish book. Okay. Um, Won the Booker Prize. Yes. Yeah. And it's a and it takes place in the '80s and and it is uh, incredibly wrenching and sad, but also really lovely. So you don't like easy reads, do you? <laughs> I don't. I tend to gravitate toward not easy reads. So um, my what I read is is very meandering and serendipitous. Someone gives me a book, I read it, um, and and I certainly enjoy an easier read, but I tend to gravitate toward. A little bit More denser, difficult ones. Yeah, <laughs> challenging. Yeah, Patrick likes them too. I do too. Yeah. I know. So you know, we're all we're all different. So yeah, no, I know. what are you working on? I'm going to assume that you haven't finished writing. Um, I'm working on. Well, I'm in the research phase, but this is kind of off the beaten path. But I am I am working on a, uh, or I'm looking into working on a story about. 
uh, in 15th century Florence, a house for virgins. It was this, um, it was this, this little place where girls went when they were 12 and they would work in the production of silk, but the, the real reason they were there was to kind of protect, protect their virginity. Um, which was the, which this incredibly high economic value at the time. Um, so it became this commodity. And I'm, I'm looking at that. I was in, when I was in college, I lived in Florence. So I, I, it's fun for oh, me. Oh, you went to the Stanford and Florence. I was, yes. With my sister. It was not oh. open when I was at Stanford. I didn't get to go to Florence, but my sister went, who's younger. Oh, yes. I was always annoyed oh. that I couldn't go. Yeah, that's very close to my heart. Hard. And I, I was never, I was not terribly interested that close to the war somehow going to college. Oh, sure. where it really yeah. bothered me, so I didn't. Yeah, yeah. But that was, a, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a fun thing for me to do, to research and to, to kind yeah. of go down the rabbit hole of whatever is, <laughs> whatever is one of my fascinations at the moment. So, well, thank you very much, Ray. If Patrick, thank if there's so something much. else, let me just remind you that we do still have autographed copies of Wonderland, not a lot left. Our notable new fiction book for December uh, really is fascinating and particularly relevant, I think, in terms of current world events. So, thank you so much, Barbara and Patrick. That was so nice. It was really fun. It's very nice meeting you. Thank you again for sending me these early materials. Oh, gosh. I will, I will have the Wall Street Journal sent to you. Oh, that's so copy. nice. Thank okay? you. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank Bye. you. Oh, by the way, at three o'clock, which is only 55 minutes from now, we're going to be talking to Ann Williams of National Geographic about the gorgeous new book, uh, Treasures of Egypt, which is a whole panorama of archaeology and discoveries in Egypt. So, I'm going to switch from Soviet Union in 1973 <laughs> to the Nile Delta back in 3000 BC seamlessly. <laughs> Bye. Fabulous. Bye, all. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.